Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Her Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thrilled that you're with us on this Thursday, December the 30th. We're almost done with the year. Uh, we're going to do more of a formalized uh, year and review show on tomorrow's program. But today we're going to do just a little something different. Uh, we're going to review some of the interviews we've been doing on Her Tell. We're pretty proud of them. We're very proud that we get a variety of guests from a variety of viewpoints to cover things from different point of views. We turn down the noise on the news cycle and try to get to good information. And we do that often by having really good guests on, knowledgeable folks who know what they're talking about, but can also talk about it in plain language, just discussing it with us. And that's what we're going to do on today's show. We're going to break down some of the interviews that we've been doing both on the weekday Herd Tell and also on the longer form podcast. So if you missed any of this at all, you'll be able to maybe hear something that you didn't catch the first time or review something that hopefully you liked before. Uh, the way to get all of this, of course, is to subscribe, whether it's on YouTube, any of the podcasting platforms, uh, make sure you will get all of it all in one place. Uh, just type in Herd Tell or my name, Andrew Donaldson, should come right up for you. We're on iTunes, Spotify, uh, any of the major podcasting platforms. If you got Google or Amazon, you can tell your smart speaker to just play it. It'll pull it right up for you. And of course, on YouTube, you can watch us. We're going to start with something we're very proud of that we do on Hertel. We bring in voices, not just locally or American voices, but also from overseas, getting a wider perspective, keeping a global perspective, even though we deal with local and national issues. Our friend Connor Duffy from over in Ireland, uh, we talk about the perception of American news media, what does and doesn't burn through overseas, and get a wider perspective on things like COVID-19, Biden, culture and politics, and how America is viewed from our friends overseas. Enjoy this cut from our friend Connor Duffy from the podcast. Yeah, I think it's an interesting perspective thing, too, talking about the perspective you have over there and us of you guys over there from over here. COVID is one of those real rare events where everybody worldwide had to deal with it. Um, that's yeah. pretty unusual in history unless it's, you know, like even a war, you know, the there's the fighting and then there's different fronts and then there's ration. COVID's one of the rare world events where just about everybody's household worldwide had to deal with this. Mm. And I think it was a very interesting touch point um, for perspective of how the world works and how different people in different parts of the world react to it. Because mm. for one of the few times in human history, or at least recent human history, every single household on the planet had to deal with the same problem. And they mm. had to deal with it through a filter of how their own governments work, how their own cultures work, how their own family structures work. I, I think mm. when we get away from it a little bit, um, 
and and get away from the crisis of it and the and the fighting over the minutia of it that there's a lot to analyze that's healthy there i think of this is rare for everybody that you know for somebody in in you know uh, a dublin or a belfast to have the same problem as somebody in new york or kansas has mm. i think there's something really worthwhile to check into perception wise there of hey how did people deal with this and how do we adjust to it going forward from there mm. And that was something that I'm sure you saw a lot of, I certainly saw a lot of, was uh, people were constantly comparing what other countries were doing um, yeah. in a way that, I mean, to an extent that that often happens, you know, people are saying, oh, this country handles this issue in such a way. And I think this would be a good idea to bring in here. But COVID almost uniquely, like people were almost, you know, week to week, day to day, looking at what the stats coming out of other countries were. And it was like, oh, these guys have a lower case rate and a lower death rate. You know, what is it that this country is doing? And there was so much, um, there was just so much comparison, I found. There was so many, so many people were talking about what was, what sort of policies, what sort of um, societal um, actions were being taken, what sort of on the individual level was happening. There's just so much comparison between how all these other people were dealing with COVID and whether there was something that we could learn from ourselves. So, yeah, in a way, it was a sort of it was this sort of unifying event that, as you say, is something to kind of think about. It's like that was so it was a very bad thing to happen, obviously, that we had to deal with this. But it was interesting in how it sort of brought everyone together in a very, you know, I suppose it was it was like it was a common enemy. I suppose that's what did it. Um, everyone had to deal with the virus. The virus did not care about, you know, who you were, what your cultural background was, what your government was like. The virus just wanted to infect you. So, you know, you everyone had to figure out a way to deal with it. And what other people were doing was always going to be relevant. And so you kind of had to take it in. Yeah. Let me let me just ask you this to, to kind of put a bow on this, though, is um, mm. I know you follow American politics, but why do you do that? I know we joke about being a glutton for punishment, <laughs> but talking perspective, you know, I, I want to expand my world and understand how the wider world, though, is. But, mm. you know, what is it about American, not just because we're a superpower or a global power or anything, what is it mm. about the American system and American news and, and America's place in the world that, you and and the people you talk to because we run in some of the same circles and we have some mm. overlap but there mm. there's this worldwide thing why why do you pay attention to america because that's a perception i think america sometimes we don't really understand our place in the world you're mm. on the other side of that looking back tell them that like this is why we follow you this is why we pay attention to mm. what's going on in your country good or bad uh mm. so much yeah, so part of it is what you mentioned is that, you know, well, America is the global superpower, um, depending on who you ask, potentially one of two, um, as we mentioned earlier. But um, I, that being said, I don't see anyone following Chinese politics to the same extent that they follow American politics. Hmm. So that doesn't explain all of it, obviously. Part of it is that, well, what America does matters. Um, what's the, um, the saying was, if America sneezes, Europe gets a cold, you know, it's... Um, it's something, it just, it just matters what America does. So it, it's very, if you care about what's happening in the world, if you care about what's happening in your country, America is going to matter. It's just such an influential, it's such an influential country. It has so much power. It has so much, um, like not just um, like say it's military, economic, diplomatic. It matters what America does. So you, you kind of need, if you want to take an interest in politics at all, you sort of need to keep an eye on what America is doing. But 
as I say, I don't think that explains all of it. Very few people can, you know, describe the Chinese political system. I'm one of them. Right. Um, I tried to get a grasp on it at one stage, and it's just, it runs very, very differently. It's uh, obviously not a democracy, no matter what sure. they claim. So it's, you know, that things happen in a very different way. But um, I think it was, I think this was, uh, Christopher Hitchens was asked this before, and he just said it's because America is the greatest show on earth. It's just, it's where the, uh, it's just, it's just, it's so much more entertaining, you know, it's, yeah. um, there's big fights. I think it's like what you mentioned. It's so adversarial, you know, there's always something, to, there's always something going on. They're always fighting about something, you know, there's some issue that is, uh, causing a big controversy. And, um, I suppose it's very, you know, it's, it's always, I suppose it's easy to follow because there's two sides, you know? Yeah. So you're like, Oh, team A and team B. Uh, now obviously that doesn't get, that doesn't get to the depths of disagreements. Obviously, there's so many people in the states who don't um, who don't find themselves on either team, and who you know kind of have you know nuances of opinions. But when there's a big kind of on the political level, on the level of you know politicians in Washington, you know it's it's kind of a showdown. There's the you know blue versus red. So I suppose yeah. it is sort of um, it can it can be a very compelling thing to follow um, in that sense too. So there is a certain as a certain uh, glutton for punishment enjoyment out of watching it as well. Um, but for me, me personally too, I do try to keep up with um, what's happening in other countries. I do like to know what's going on in the rest of the world, um, not just kind of care about what's happening in my own um, kind of backyard. I think it's, I think it's good to try and take a global perspective. Um, and so that's, that would also definitely feed into why I feel follow American politics. But of course, that's the reason to follow German politics and British politics and right. try to understand the incomprehensibility that is uh, Chinese politics. <laughs> um, but um, yeah. We continue with more Herd Tell right after this. Welcome back to Herd Tell. We're continuing to review some of the interviews and discussions that we really think we're important that we've done on Hertel so far this year as we kind of round out the year. Uh, somebody who I greatly respect, talk to frequently. I go on his podcast. He comes on mine. Uh, somebody I just kick around ideas and a uh, fellow writer at Ordinary-Times.com, Dennis Sanders, somebody I greatly respect. We don't agree on everything, but we learn to hash things out, and I appreciate his opinion. I respect his viewpoints, and he's somebody I will always talk to and we always enjoy having on the program. We recently on the podcast did a long-form conversation talking about things like identity and what it means to be American and American culture and these sorts of things. It's a deep, in-depth conversation. We're just going to pull out one little part of it. Make sure you check the whole thing on the podcast. That's why you need to make sure you're subscribed so you get all the past stuff along with the Daily Herd Tell and the new podcasts that come out. So enjoy this cut of our friend Dennis Saunders from the podcast, talking a little bit about identity and politics and culture. Enjoy. We're kicking this around on the radio show a couple of days ago, and I, I, this is a really big thing. So, and but I just want to throw it to you because I just want your reaction to it. Is we were we were talking about? I think we're in a dispensation of time in America that we don't really understand because we've been so focused on post-World War II America for the last 70 years. And we've kind of lived on the fumes of that in a lot of ways. And we see the societal unrest because you have minorities and people like that, that are 20, 30 years behind that because of the civil rights movement and things. 
is a lot of what we're seeing now, and I'm talking real big picture here, not just politics, is a lot of what we're seeing in America now that with social media, with the technology, we're just having a reckoning of what we are as a people. And because everybody has a voice and everybody has a face online now and everybody has an ability to amplify and interconnect, that we're just having a long overdue reckoning of, hey, this really is a big very diverse, very pluralistic society. And, and there's a battle Royale that's just got to be worked out because people are just for the first time, a lot of them realizing that, Hey, there's most of the people in this world and in this country aren't like me at all. And there's millions of them. Is, is that kind of big picture? What's really going on here is just for the first time people are having to deal with, Oh, my little conclave that I grew up with. I'm in a, I'm a global citizen now and people are having to try to work that out. And some of them aren't working it out real well. I think it is. I think we have been for a long time and and the way our whole reality has been shaped up has been the post-war consensus. But, you know, the, that consensus actually probably broke down in the eighties, um, and I think we are living with those fumes. But but the and, 80s were so good. See, uh, yeah. Not to interrupt mm-hmm. you, but that's where no, I no. think that's where the breakdown is because we had the economic resurgence in the 80s. I I think, and you know, I was a baby. I bar- I remember the late 80s because I was born in 1980. But but explain what you mean by that to folks that are maybe younger or just haven't thought of it that way, because people think of the 80s as a really good time in America. How can that be where the breakdown occurred? Because things were good in the 80s. We had, you know, pop culture explosion and MTV. Explain what you mean by that, because it runs counter to what a lot of people think that time was. So explain that a little bit, if you would, please. Sir. Well, yeah, and I think I probably would want to even back up a little bit more is that a lot of people like economists and some politicians and, and um, other experts would say that the the post-war consensus that was made after world war ii some of both economically and and politically probably ended around the mid 70s so between like 1973 to 1975 so when you and we know what happened right around that time exactly um and you know i don't really remember that time much because at that time i was um a kid and it was I was born in six, 1969 so I don't remember the, the the consensus and we all know what happened with the 70s economically and all of that um, the 80s I think the reason sometimes we remember it so fondly is that things did get better and I think sometimes even though it got better that doesn't mean that the the consensus hadn't you know that things weren't changing um that i think the economy was still kind of changing over there was still lots of movement of what things were happening you know if you lived in michigan in the 1980s it was a mess because the auto industry was changing we were dealing with competition from japan but we were also dealing with technology and that you didn't need as many people to make um, cars and all of that. So though there were things that are happening, even though the, I think the, the wider economy was, were, was doing rather well, um, there were parts of it where things were changing. That was also, you know, the rise of, of I think, the tech industry um, becoming uh, greater. So, you know, 
even in those times of change and, and even in the times when when a consensus has ended, there are going to be good points. I think that there are going to be times where things go well. Um, and I think that that went into the 90s um, as the economy was still going strong. It was probably even better than it was in the 80s um, where it kind of faltered and where we started to have problems, I would say is probably around the year 2000 politically, because of course that was the year of that election. And then I think that caught up then in 2008 with um, the economic problems and the crash of the market and all of that. Those two things together, I think, really just kind of shattered any illusion that things were still going well. I mean, there was already a lot of change. Like I said, there was been a lot of change going in the 80s and 90s, but no one really noticed it as much because the economy was doing so well. When the economy wasn't doing as well, and then also when Washington wasn't doing as well, that's when we started to see things happening. Top that off with the fact that our society was changing. Um, we have, I think, for a long time, especially during the post-war consensus, World War II consensus, to put this probably in the most crudest way possible, we still thought of ourselves as a mostly white nation. That has been changing dramatically um, over the last 40, 50 years. Uh, immigration and, and other things have changed in that we are much more diverse than we ever have been. And that's going to bring up, bring up a lot of questions and a lot of, of friction. Um, you know, this is why I think why we have this whole thing about the 1619 project when, and all the kind of craziness on that is that we're all trying to figure out, okay, so now we have this country and what does it mean to be an American? What does it mean to live in America? What does it mean that we are a democracy, but yet we also have this horrible history of slavery or, or how we treated Native Americans? And so we're all trying to deal with all of those issues, some actually most not very well. Um, and so I think a lot of what we're seeing is, I think you are correct, that we're heading into something new. And I think we're all nervous about it. And to talk about social media for a second, you, um, I don't know if you've read or heard, heard much from Martin Gurry, um, who talks a little bit about you know, how the media was once, that there were kind of gatekeepers um, in the media. And of course, you only had at one time three networks and all of this stuff. And you know, with social media, now anyone can say anything. And there are people who don't like that. They wish that we could go back to what it was, but that horse is out of the barn and into the next county and down the valley and into the next state. I mean, it's, it's just gone. There, I don't think we can go back to what we once were. I think we have to figure out what it means to live now in this era of social media. And, and instead of trying to long for some day that, it is just not coming back. I think it's something else too, and not to get overly poetic about it. You know, I love my country. I'm, I, I'm very open about 
you know, what I think about America. I think, I think my bona fides are a patriot are pretty well established at this point for a lot of reasons. I, I love my country. Part of this that we're talking about is understanding that I love my country. Other people also love our country, but they love it differently. And they express mm-hmm. that love differently. And they got there differently and almost like a family relationship, not to beat a metaphor to death, but their relationship with the country has different baggage than mine. And they Mm -hmm. have different experiences with their country than I do. And it's, and unless you're just going to really do a deep dive into history, which granted guilty because I'm, you know, a history guy at heart. My dad was a history teacher and made sure I knew all that stuff. um, A lot of people just don't have, maybe they've never taken the time to understand that, Hey, they can still love this thing that I love. They're just loving it differently and they're loving it from a different point of view. But mm-hmm. that's that's some that's not just advanced citizenship, which America demands of us. That's advanced adulting. And yes, I don't think it's something we can really teach. I don't think you can. You certainly can't legislate it. You're not going to make people do it. But I think it's a modeled behavior and a and an advocacy thing where we just have to keep pushing people to go like, hey, you part of one of the great freedoms in America is the freedom to be wrong. And mm-hmm. it's okay if their view of our country is different. And it does, even if they're critical of the country, that doesn't, that's something I've had to mature and kind of grow up about is like, just because they're critical of the country and I love my country doesn't mean they don't love their country. A lot of them are critical because they care so dang much about it. It's coming off as anger and it's coming off as frustration and they want things to be better. This isn't just a political thing. This is, this is adulting. This is grown you know, it's in my family, this is grown folk stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's just not enough people at the grown folk table to talk about this right now because people keep coming with mess and getting sent to the kids table. I don't know what kind of your family you grew up in, but that's how it works. You know, grown folk talk at the grown folk table. That's a privilege, not a right. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that those are the things that we just don't have a good way of dealing with right now of, hey, this is the advanced adult citizenship we need to work on to maintain being a great country. And I think maybe we're in some growing pains or maybe even maybe birthing pains because we're still a young country. Maybe this is just the birthing pains of making a, a great society that's going to last more than two or 300 years. If you're going to have that thousand year thing that a lot of countries and societies and cultures are, this is the process. Is that is that maybe part of it? Is like we just I don't th- have a maturity to it? I think it is there. I'm reminded and I'm probably going to butcher this, but it's a, a quote by James Baldwin that says, you know, I love my country and I love it, I love it enough that I'm, I'm willing to criticize it. And I think for myself being African-American, and, and I think that this is something that I've, I've realized, I think for most African-Americans in, is that we have, a, have to live with it in a way with a duality. And the duality is, is that we love our country. I mean, there's a reason that Martin Luther King spoke and used the words of the founding fathers and the, and the Declaration of Independence because this is who we are. We are Americans. That's why we're fighting for all, for civil rights. But you also know the past. I, I mean, I know my father growing up in Jim Crow, Louisiana. I know that I have, you know, my ancestors were slaves. So you know that history, and you know how we have been treated in the past and, and, you know, to be honest, that we're still kind of dealing with some of those issues today, even though I think it's, it's much better um, than what it was. And I think that for people, especially I think for, for white Americans and for 
there has been a certain view of America that has almost been perfect, um, that we haven't had any real big issues and, and issues have all been solved. And, and I think that's kind of one of, the, one of the things that are getting into the whole like critical race theory stuff. Um, and I say this knowing that there are things you can be critical about critical race theory, but I think a lot of it is this fear of hearing about things about America that aren't always so great, that we, are, we weren't always the guys with the white hats. Um, and so there's this fear that if I have to see something critical about America, then that means I hate America. And then that is not the case. Um, this is a big, diverse, and I will also say complex country. But I think for all of it, I think we're a good country. But good does not mean perfect. Good just means good. And I think, you know, part of that maturity will come from being willing to kind of understand our past, um, understanding some of the, the parts of our present that need to be corrected, um, and yet understanding that there are still things that are good about this country. Um, now, I, I probably should add on the other side of that, because there are people, I've been kind of basically talking from the right, from the left of saying there, you can have people doing things that are bad and they can still also be good people. Um, that happens too. And we have to, I think, admit there are also good things about this country. Um, personally, I think, you know, the fact that this country barely 50 years after the civil rights movement was able to elect a black man to become president twice says something about us. Um, I think that that's something that we need to also take to heart as well. And so I think it, it, there's a kind of maturity that has to come from, I think, both sides of the aisle of, of being willing to deal with the good and the bad and not kind of have this whatever kind of avatarish view of America. We continue with more Heard Tell right after this. Welcome back to Heard Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Uh, you probably heard tell that there wasn't anything louder in the cultural and political discourse this year than CRT, critical race theory. Well, we also tackled that on Heard Tell. Uh, we reached out to our friends at the Narrative Projects, and uh, Sophia Sedegren Booker joined us on the podcast, did a long podcast on CRT. Now, we didn't debate CRT itself, and the reason for it is part of what she talks about. Uh, how you approach something like CRT depends on how you define it. And different people define it differently. They can't even agree on what it is, what it means, how it's being used. Is it the academic legal theory from back in the 70s? It's the way it is expounded to mean a academic exercise to discuss systematic racism. Or is it the catch-all buzzword term for anything about race that we're putting in the school system that folks want to debate about? Uh, so what she did and the Narratives Project did was really interesting. They took five of the major news outlets across the spectrum and studied how they present and talk about this issue. And within that, it starts giving us some clarity on how this issue is being discussed. It's a great way to look at things. It's a better way to turn down the noise on something that has been one of the loudest and one of the most contentious debates of the past year. 
I think you'll get a lot from this. If nothing else, it may change your perspective and give you a little bit of a broader view of the subject. So Sophia Sedegren Booker on the Hertel podcast. Enjoy this clip. But it's written this way in the report, quote, as the CRT discourse is often centered around education and schooling, a person's priors around the purpose of education also play an important role in their interpretation of CRT. Uh, The problem with that, of course, is America, I don't think we have a good national consensus on what education is. And we saw this again to bring up the COVID again, because it just brought, you know, crisis reveals things. There's a debate in America of what is education? Is it to prepare kids for college? Is it to prepare kids for life? Or is it this giant daycare and jobs program? So when you have those divergent views on education to start with, and that's a very controversial topic because nothing fires people up like messing with their kids. That's just how politics works. Um, that's already a highly controversial topic. You're going to put an even more controversial topic on top of it. That's almost an impossible environment to try to get to anything uh, even close to a consensus or even a productive narrative, isn't it? Yeah, that's an excellent point. I think that we have these very strong views on education and they feel natural to us. And it's therefore easy to assume that this is how people view education. But when you look at it, as you said, there's all these different views of what education is supposed to do. And in the report, we're given the example of uh, education being either an engine for positive social change or an institution where we learn from our past accomplishments. And this is only one aspect of the education debate. But I think that if you have one lens over the other, that will impact how you view new topics like critical race theory, because you will put that new concept within your already existing view of what education is. Yeah. And it leads to, I don't want to say it's the heart of the report, but there's, there's definitely a thread that runs through this entire report on CRT. Again, we're talking about how CRT is discussed in the discourse, not the actual, you know, merits of the different sides of it. There's a real running thread through this, and you kind of explicitly deal with it in the conclusion of there's really no such thing as neutral, is there? Because I know we try to talk about biases and we talk about, you know, academic freedom or academic neutrality or things like that. When it comes to something like this, there's just no such thing because there's so many layers to it. You have to have a rudimentary understanding of certain things just to talk about this, and that means you're going to have priors well-worn into how you view something like critical race theory. And then the bigger things that you deal with like race, like education, there's just no such thing as neutral really here. Is there, even though you're trying really hard and your brand is to be neutral, there's no such thing as neutral here. Is there? Yeah, that's exactly right. I, um, what we're trying to get at is not saying that because we can't be neutral, we're bad, or this is a testy conversation because we can't be neutral. We're trying to emphasize that it is a natural human behavior to not be able to neutrally absorb information. We have to put it within our existing frameworks and contexts to make sense of what is happening. We can't just look at something and then ignore everything that we have experienced and everything that we believe in and interpret something neutrally. So. Personally, I am not a postmodernist, so I do believe that there are facts out in the world 
but I'm also well aware of that we are not particularly good as human beings at just neutrally absorbing those fats. We need to put them within our own narratives for them to make sense to us. And that is what makes it so difficult to discuss something like CRT because we can't understand it without also putting it within our understanding of what America is, what education is, and how we view the world. And that's just the basis for this uh, context where we talk past each other rather than with one another. And, you know, to go back to something we touched on earlier, uh, America is somewhat unique in the world because we're so diverse and we're so so much of a pluralistic society, unlike you go to, you know, many European countries or other parts of the world where you have smaller populations that are a lot more, a lot less diverse, not in a bad way. They just are. It's the way it is. America is a big place with a lot of different people from a lot of different places. It's it's almost built into the cake with this because like we talked about, CRT started out as as an academic theory and academic exercise to broaden people's worldviews and experiences. And you're saying in the report, and I'll just quote it to you, that, um, quote, we can try to get a fuller picture of the debate by seeking out viewpoints and contradicting our own, but claiming to approach some topics from a neutral point of view is, as far as we can tell, impossible given our distinct experiences and worldviews. There's kind of an irony here, isn't there, that something is CRT, which was designed to expand worldviews, it's almost doomed from the start from doing that very thing in the current environment because of that same problem. It's kind of funny how that worked out, isn't it? I mean, it, it's causing a mess, but isn't that just, it, it almost proves its own point to its own detriment. I don't know how you'd say that real fancy, but isn't that what kind of happened here? Yeah, and I think that the great distinction here in academia, it was presented as this one lens that you can use to look at a problem. And when we discuss it in the public debate, it has turned into the way that we view or should not view things. So instead of using it as one tool in a toolbox of various different ways that you can look at a problem, we're now discussing this as being applied universally to all problems that we look at as the only frame. And I think that that's where we have a lot of the disagreement between the left and right, because to some people, race is an issue that touch on all aspects of society, and we need to acknowledge and account for that, while to others, race is one factor in society, but it's not the most important one. And by constantly reminding ourselves of what people's race are and how race are playing a role in society, we're actually creating more focus on race, which is to people who oppose CRT, a negative thing. You went about this report, uh, and one of the things that kind of drew you to the there's no such thing as neutral conclusion was you were trying to take five different media outlets. Um, and I see what you were trying to do. You were trying to do a spectrum from the left to the right and have a center. You couldn't really find a center for this one is kind of what happened. And, and, I, and I know some people that do just straight media commentary might roll their eyes at the specific outlets you pick. But the the truth is every outlet has a little diversity inside of itself anyway. But talk about how that happened and got you to the neutral part, because um, I I think media bias is kind of a rabbit hole. It's, it's got limited uh, use in the, in the discourse because all human beings have bias. So therefore everybody's going to have bias. But on this, when you tried to put that spectrum together, 
there was no neutral here, but there was some very distinct differences as you went across the spectrum with these five outlets. Yeah. So I think this happens a lot in research. You go into the research with certain questions and certain expectations of what is going to happen. But then when you're in it, you realize that, oh, this is actually not how things come together. And then you have to acknowledge that and adjust for that in uh, your findings. So as you mentioned, we looked at five different news outlets that were uh, supposed to represent the left uh, leaning left position and then a center leaning right and right position. And what we found was that there is uh, distinctions between these four or five rather, but uh, we can see that both the furthest left and furthest right hold more uh, firm and strongly articulated positions, while the lean right and lean left hold similar positions, but they're articulated a little bit milder or a little bit more neutrally. What we were expecting was that the center position would just be neutral, but it's not. (laughs) Instead, we found that a center position is a balance between articulating positions on the left and positions on the right. So instead of leaning towards we oppose CRT or we are for CRT, the center newspaper focused on this is why people are for CRT and this is why they're against it. And they tried to balance that without actually presenting something that would be considered a center position. We continue with more Hertel right after this. Going back to Hertel as we review some of the interviews and discussions that uh, shaped 2021 here on Hertel, some that we're very proud of, some that we think were thought-provoking, and we're kind of rehashing some of those today. Uh, Abby Hall Blanco, a Young Voices contributor, somebody we've talked to before, uh, we had her on to discuss uh, economics and turn down the noise on the economy and things like this. Uh, she's a professor at Bellarmine University. Uh, she writes extensively on the topic, but she explains it in ways that even I can understand it. Uh, so you probably heard tell the economy has been a very, very prominent fixture in the news media cycle for 2021. It will be again in 2022 because it's the economy, stupid. It's always the economy. So especially in an election year, pay attention to the economy. So in this clip uh, from the podcast, uh, Abby Hall Blanco joined us, helped us turn down the noise on economics, economic issues, defining the problems, what we should worry about, what we shouldn't worry about. Do find the whole thing. If you're subscribed to Herd Tell, you'll be able to find the entire podcast, but do enjoy this small clip from it. But where, where do you tell people? Because everybody knows what you do in your life, I'm sure. I'm sure they reach out to you and be like, hey, explain this to me like I'm five because I don't understand this. Uh, how much of what we're seeing about the economy is just abstract panic? How much of it is cause for concern? Is there a propaganda element to some of this? Kind of, kind of steer us a little bit just to kick off today. Where should we actually worry and where should we be like, no, that's noise. Let's turn that down and get to the information on what's actually going on in the economy right now. Sure. So I'll try to give the answer that my dad always asks for. So um, my family will ask questions of what's going on with insert topic here. And right. my dad will then follow that up immediately with the short version 
please. Um, Cause it's not always, not always easy to do. So um, I think one of the big things that's on people's minds right now is what's going on with inflation. So people have been hearing that prices are rising. And if you've done any kind of grocery shopping or anything like that, chances are you're probably feeling it in your wallet. I know that I am. So inflation is a complicated issue. Um, it caught some economists flat-footed. It did not catch other of us completely off guard. The big question that's being asked right now is, are these price increases? And when we talk about inflation, by the way, we mean about what's happening to all of the prices. So if all prices are generally going up, that's inflation. Because um, we're used to prices bouncing around all the time, but inflation's talking about all of the prices taken together. So the big question is, is the inflation that we're currently experiencing, is it transitory? So is this something that is going to get better over time? Or is this something that's going to be uh, sticking around for a while? And that question remains to, to be determined. Um, there is some argument that some of it at least is transitory. Um, part of that relates to the fact that you have people who are wanting to spend, they're wanting to buy stuff. So they've got this like pent up uh demand because they've been locked down for almost two years at this point. And then we also have these supply chain issues. So there aren't enough goods and services to keep up with this demand. And then you've got this um, kind of perfect storm for higher prices. So if those supply chains eventually catch up and there's some expectation that they will at some point, um, then we might expect to see prices going back down. However, you have to consider things like what's been going on with the Federal Reserve. We've been printing tons of money over the last couple of years. Um, and when you use the printing press, then we oftentimes see that inflation follows that type of monetary policy. So I would pay attention to, to that. Um, other things people are giving a lot of attention to right now are oil reserves. So what's happening to uh, oil and natural gas prices, which is something to be cognizant of. Um, and then something else that's popped up on a couple of feeds, uh, apparently maple syrup. They're also <laughs> tapping into reserves, too. So, yeah, blank Canada, right? When all else fails. <laughs> um, what is it? Because people talk about it, that this kind of started as a supply side inflation issue. You're an economist by trade. Uh, I'm I know the supply side a little better because I'm a transportation guy by trade. Uh, there's a lot of truth to that. COVID was a unique uh, event because it was worldwide and it came in waves because it hit different parts of the world at different times. What is something that folks can look at that says, okay, yeah, this was a supply side issue to start with, but the way we're reacting, the way we're handling it, whether it's government policy or public panic or whatever, where would be the tipping point where this would go from a supply side inflation or a supply side problem to we've made this worse and now we're dealing with a full-blown inflation event or whatever the proper terminology for that would be? So I don't know that there's necessarily like a, a tipping point where if you're on one side of it, then you have this scenario and this road that you're going down. Or if you're on the other side, there's there's another road. Um, I think that there are a couple of different things that people can look at. As economists, we look at both the supply side and the demand side of the equation. So um, looking to see things like, um, you know, what, how many ships are sitting docked off yeah, of yeah. the California coast waiting to be unloaded. That's something that we can look at looking for supply chain issues. Um, we also look at things like consumer sentiment, consumer confidence. We know how much people are spending, especially right now with the holiday season. People are going to be really interested in paying attention to how much people are spending in the retail sector. So I think there are a couple of different things that we could look at. 
one thing that I'm always encouraging people to do if they want to know what's going on out in the economy is to take a look at what is going on in terms of policy. So what we're seeing right now um, is what are called like lagging effects or sometimes system effects. So oftentimes when we talk about policy, we don't appreciate really, or at least it's difficult to appreciate that sometimes the outcomes or the consequences of these policies aren't seen until 12, 18, 24 months down the road. And so things that were implemented a year, year and a half ago that we've all kind of forgotten about because we're busy doing other things, some of those consequences are now what we're actually seeing in addition to um, things which are going on related to contemporary conditions. You talk about it, uh, the lag time. It's part of the problem when we discuss economics, especially in America and our current media environment, that we don't understand that there's a lag time, that we don't understand it like, yeah, we have a president, but he's been president for roughly a year and there was a guy before him. And then the guy that was before him had a guy before him. They have lag times. There's there's a lot of this who gets caught in what chair at what time. Is that part of the problem when we discuss economics is we just kind of look at that national political sign and we don't understand it. Like, look, there's waves and layers and nuances to these economic problems that don't fit into our news cycle just perfect. And then people don't get the information on the economy that they really need to kind of make good decisions about things like holiday spending or like planning for next year when something that happened 18 months ago is going to affect the second quarter of next year and things like this. So I think that there's definitely part of that. Um, one of my areas of research is what's called public choice economics or the economics of politics. And one of the things that we talk about within that body of literature is exactly what you mentioned, is that sometimes who gets caught kind of holding the bags is who happens to be there at the time. Mm. Whereas, as you point out, sometimes it's not the person who actually is currently sitting in the chair that is the person who implemented the, the policies. Um, there are a variety of different factors that people can look at. Some of them are within the control of policymakers. Some of them are out of control of uh, policymakers, regardless of how much we would like to think that the policymakers are in control of some of these things. Um, and so there's there's definitely some of that. Um, one of the other things that I always point out to people, too, is that when we talk about um, the economy, there's not you can't master like economic understanding in in all areas. So right. when people are like, I'm really confused about what's going on right now, like I'm opening um, I'd say a newspaper, but no one reads newspapers anymore. <laughs> like I open my email inbox in the morning or I turn on the TV and I just don't understand all of the things that are going on. Um, and it's totally understandable because uh, we as professional economists are trying to make heads and tails of a lot of the stuff that, that's going on right now too. And so understanding any particular issue, whether you're wanting to look at inflation, if you're wanting to look at the supply chain, if you're wanting to look at um, COVID policy or whatever type of policy that you want to look at, all of these things have different economic implications of them, and they are all in their own right remarkably complicated. We continue with more Herd Tell right after this. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Thank you so much for joining us today. A little bit different episode, doing a little bit of recapping. Uh, but we're proud of what we do here. So if you would, we'd sure appreciate you leaving a rating and a comment. However, you're watching this on any of the podcasting platforms on YouTube, uh, make sure you comment. We will respond to those comments as well. 
if you really want to do us a solid, share us on your social media. It only costs you a click, but it's a big deal to us. Let's people know that our little program is worth their time because we never want to disrespect your time. It's the most precious thing you give us. We want to continue to give you the best information we possibly can, the best discussion, the most knowledgeable guests, voices you probably won't hear anywhere else, but that's how we turn down the noise of the news cycle and get to the information we need to discern our times. You can follow us on social media at Hertel Show on Twitter, Show at gmail.com. If you want to email us, you can also follow me at Four for the Fire on the Twitter. And if you comment on any of those platforms I just mentioned, we'll make sure to respond to you. That'll do it for Hertel. Uh, we have very special guests tomorrow coming up. We're going to do a little bit of end of the year review. Already have great guests lined up for the first of the year come next week. Uh, we've kind of been slow rolling Herdtel out. Uh, we just kind of started doing it. Uh, some situations lined up for us to do it weekdays. You folks have responded. We greatly appreciate you. Thank you so very much. We'll finish out 2021 tomorrow. See you then. Till then, y'all take care wherever you are, across the street or around the world. We hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. And we'll see you tomorrow on the last day of 20. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.